Welcome to Life After Service. This is the audio-only version of this month's episode. You can watch now the original video documentary on YouTube, youtube.com slash podcast. This year, Life on the Line released a new special project, a special documentary series focusing on veterans' lives after their time in uniform, called Life After Service. Australians sign up and put their lives on the line to do their part to protect the nation and its interests. But when the day comes to hang up their uniform for the last time, it's the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next. In this series, we talk to some of our veterans about their life after service. So far in this series, we've featured the stories of six veterans over six episodes. In our first episode, we spoke with Sarah Watson, a former intelligence officer to Ironman athlete to veterans advocate. That sense of purpose can't be underestimated, especially after service. You need to kind of find what drives you and and gives you purpose to be able to move forward with your life. Our second episode features Glenn Kolomitz, a former aircraft technician, military policeman, and legal officer. To have that um, that transition piece at least um, somewhere in the back of your mind, I I think you you can't really um, be in defence for the long haul, which I I was, um, not having uh, an exit strategy. It sounds negative, but not having thought about what you're going to do when you do get Third, we interviewed former SAS trooper and Australian Federal Police officer Don Barnby. These people need to be looked after and they need to know that they can be looked after without affecting their career because you know, that's their life and they did it. They volunteered, they did it willingly. Tony Park, a fiction and non-fiction international best-selling author, was our fourth veteran interviewed on the series, who served in the Australian Army Reserves in various roles, including as a public affairs officer. You know, so when I hear the stories of veterans who are struggling, even today, of people who've attempted suicide and those whose lives have been lost, unfortunately, I can see how it's happened and, and how real the problem is. Our fifth interview was with Tamara Slopper-Harding, who served in the Royal Australian Navy as an intelligence officer and saw deployments to East Timor and Bougainville. It's very challenging emotionally to have to relive certain situations Um, so I can understand why a lot of veterans steer clear of going through that process but the more that we do it and get the help out there for people in need, veterans in need, the more um, we'll be successful in stopping this terrible trend of veteran suicide and mental health issues. Rounding out our series for the year we interviewed Gary and Renee Wilson Gary was a signaller attached to the 2nd Commando Regiment and both of their lives were changed forever when he was severely injured in a Black Hawk helicopter crash. Um, that's sort of what's kept us going together. I just know you're both on the same side. Yeah. You know, you're not fighting, you're fighting with each other, not against each other. Mm. We've put together a few grabs as we revisit the interviews. 
Yeah, I think that connection back to your military um, service is really important to sort of maintain. I mean, you don't have to go and join an ESO, ex-serving organisation, to feel that, but just staying connected to those people who you served with is really helpful to give you a, a sense of, um, you know, belonging still. And I think the reason why we have so many veteran organisations and, in, um, and initiatives like Invictus Games is because the military is such a unique line of work and that you really, it is a vocation, it's more than a job and it, it really does um, catch you off guard when you're no longer part of that and to then be able to connect back into veteran services um, that give you sort of those connections and that um, motivation to, to try and find yourself again as a civilian. It, it's really important to a lot of people, not necessarily for everybody, some people transition better, but for a lot of us it is um, that feeling of, uh, I guess, of loss to be honest and that the people who you served with really get you and you've been through something unique together. So, so yeah, the, those connections back are really important to maintain and to find again, you know, as, as we find ourselves back in the civilian world and working out who we are again. And I think that's an important thing to talk about, Alex, is healthy relationships and especially not just um, with people around you, but with yourself. And if you're not honouring yourself and looking after yourself, then it's hard to have healthy relationships with those around you. And I've learnt that from experience um, with a, you know, a broken marriage, but, you know, I've learned a lot from that as well and, and I've grown from that. And it's so long as we go back inside ourselves and find those issues that we are harbouring and try and work on those parts of ourselves that make us um, who we are but also the parts that might be holding us back. So, you know, for a while there I was very fixated on my condition that I was diagnosed with, you know, it was really hard to move past, well I'm Sarah, I've got PTSD. But, you know, even though it might be a condition I have to manage my whole life, it's not going to define who I am. And you know, I was ambitious and I was driven as a young woman before I joined the military and that's who I want to be again and that's who I'm starting to find myself back as. So, and it's through service to others, I guess, like you said, like the volunteering with various ESOs that gives me that sense of passion again and duty and purpose um, that that is cultivated during your service life. So I think if people, you know, who are navigating some difficult, um, conditions from their service it's not a life sentence it's not a um, it doesn't mean your life is over it, it can be such a powerful thing to create growth in yourself and push you on to do even greater things and that's what I hope to do even if it's only in my own little community sphere that's okay like that I don't need to go out and change the world I just have to do the best I can as who I am um, in my community and with my family and my relationships. I guess my sons are kind of um, like any young boys, are very much into um, guns and like games that involve shooting. And, There's some uh, Nerf water guns down the back there, <laughs> down the veranda. 20. Um, yeah, so I guess conveying about real time war versus you know what you see in the movies what you see on you know internet fortnite i don't know whatever the games that they're playing um 
the, the cost of war is much higher than just the glory of it. Um, and to me, educating them about you know, what war is about, what the military service is about, um, is going to be a thing that I'm going to have to direct my energy to because I want them to really understand not only our um, amazing Anzac heritage that you know our, I've got three grandparents who served in the military who I will want to talk to them about one day um, their father is serving in the military their uncle served in the military I served um, so there is that deep military connection they're going to have um, and you know I can probably see one of at least one of my sons joining the military just because of the passion he has for wanting to know more about the military and the army and what roles there are so yeah it, it's something I'll have to really consider how I approach it um, I'll be very honest with them and tell them about what happened with me and my service uh, in you know in due course when they can understand um, but yeah I won't be um, I won't be saying, I'll be always saying how proud I was to serve my country and um, that's something I'll reinforce to them as, as they are young and as they go on and get older. I worked as a military prosecutor for a couple of years before I got out, so um, straight into Canberra prosecuting, um, which was a high intensity workload, caseload as well, uh, and pretty complex cases. Then I got out, so uh, end of 2012, start of 2013. And I have to say, um, I found going from really high operational tempo and a really high uh, prosecutorial tempo to outside life, I found it pretty demanding, to be honest. Uh, we had um, a brand new uh, baby. In fact, I think we had two by then. Um, and we moved, had to move house uh, from Canberra to here on the coast. So all those little issues, they sort of add up. And it, it can be, in my case, it, it, was, uh, it was a big, a big step, a big leap. I didn't take advantage of, the, there's a, a lot of um, things you can get, like uh, transition assistance in terms of courses and, and financial um, assistance. I didn't take advantage of any of that. In hindsight, perhaps I should, but, but I, um, I sort of wanted to get out and get, on, get in there straight away and start doing this veterans work. So I, I, didn't, really, um, I didn't really pursue those opportunities, but they're there. Um, there. A lot of work needs to be done in the transition space, definitely. Uh, a lot of work. But the opportunities are there. I know DVA and, and Defence, but DVA has, uh, Veterans Affairs, has um, a certain amount of funding for reskilling and retraining. And I know state governments, New South Wales particularly, have programs to reskill um, people. In fact, New South Wales TAFE, you, uh, veterans can do free, certain free TAFE programs with a view to, uh, to getting employment outside of Defence. So the opportunities are there, but I think Defence should market that more. Um, I, I know a lot of my clients have, have left and they, they weren't aware of what they could, they could take advantage of and therefore their transition was less than ideal, particularly if they're struggling. Um, and you know, most of these younger veterans, if they're struggling, don't want to be on the couch um, on, on pensions for the rest of their, of the rest of their lives. Um, and Mick, is a, Mick Bainbridge is a classic example. He didn't want to be on a pension for the rest of his life. He wanted a profession. Um, and he needed that bit of a hand to get there, so he had some money and some support uh, you know, through, that, through that program. But he's now out there kicking goals. And I think um, you know, if, if younger veterans are capable of reskilling, and I, I suspect the vast majority are, um, then take the opportunities and, and you know, use that to deal with the, to some extent, to deal with the mental health um, concerns. And, and we have a lot, of, a lot of cases where our guys, our clients struggled, the wheels come off, uh, we get them back on the rails, they then reskill 
and they're out there contributing. The guys in Wagga are a classic example. These three clients down there who were struggling and now they're making an enormous contribution to the community and the veteran space down there. I, there was no counselling after Vietnam. Uh, there was no counselling in the police force, even, you know, even during the police force days. I think we started getting psychologists within the, embedded within the police force in the late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s. But while I, was in traf while I was in the police force, I went to quite a lot of suicides. I went to countless fatal accidents and some really bad ones. Uh, I went to, not to investigate, I was never a, a detective, but I went to the scene of lots of, quite a lot of murders in Canberra and some really bad ones and, and quite uh, infamous ones in the, in the history of Canberra in the last 50 odd years. There was no counselling. Our counselling in those days, you'd go to a fatal accident and uh, I went to some real bad ones and was to go up to where New Parliament House is now, it used to be called Capitol Hill, with a slab of beer and drink it out. That was the, that was the counselling. I mean, there was no counselling. Uh, there was no counselling. Uh, I didn't get any counselling after Bougainville. Not that I really needed it, I don't think, after Bougainville. But after East Timor, there was counselling available. But my partner at that stage, she, I, was, I was gutted. I was just you know, not in a good place. And she persuaded me to go through DVA or VVCS, you know, Veterans, Veterans, Vietnam Veterans Counselling Service, uh, to get help, which I did. And um, yeah, from then on, I'm still seeing a psych every now and again because PTSD cut in big time. Um, as I said to a, a mate of mine from the regiment years after, after Timor, he, he was over in Perth for some reason, over in Canberra for some reason. He said, mate, you've been to the well of courage too often and the bloody well's dry, so no more. This is, that's enough, is, enough is enough. So, and I, I realised that and I never offered to go back to, on any other missions. I, I just, it would have been a liability rather than anything because Timor, that was the brick wall, you know, that was, that, that, that did me and it did quite a few of the guys in actually. Um, as an organisation, whether it be police, military, don't make the person that, is, that has been through whatever experience, don't make them feel guilty for needing or asking for help. Because a lot of guys, and I, I, and I know it's out there, a lot of, a lot of the, when I say guys, I mean women too, a lot of these people they know that if they go through their service organisation and ask for help because they need it, um, it could affect their career. So that roadblock has to be taken out for a start because uh, I think it was Major General, don't, don't quote me, whatever rank he was, Cantwell, he, he went on, he went publicly after his term in, I think in Iraq, and he said, you know, PTSD, whack me, and uh, we need to look after these people. Uh, so I'd make, I'd make the stigma of, of needing help non-existent. If you need it, you get it, and it's available. And because everybody has, has a point that 
you know, and it does affect you. You go away uh, as one person, you come back if you've experienced, you know, you can go away at lots of missions. And they're quite, not easy, but eventless, eventful, eventless, you know, what is it? Uh, Non-eventful. But you go away in some missions and you hit the wall. So these people need to be looked after and they need to know that they can be looked after without affecting their career because you know, that's their life and they did it. They volunteered, they did it willingly. And the country that sends you away should look after you when you come back. Um, and just being letting that, letting that message permeate right through all, out all these places that send people away. Help's available if you need it, and it ain't going to affect your career. Get it if you need it. That's probably what I'm, my one message. I mean, there's probably others, but I haven't had time to think about it, so. Yeah, I had mates, I had family there, I had a sense of belonging, and I think I'd also fallen into that trap of, of thinking it was one of the things that defined me. So it wasn't who I was as a person, it was in fact I was defined by the fact, as it said in the biography for every one of my novels that kept coming out every year, Tony Park's also an officer in the Australian Army Reserve and served in Afghanistan and it seemed to be part of who I was or it defined me and I think that's a mistake and, and I think I would probably have been in a better position, uh, I, I think personally in terms of my personal development and even my personal life and my mental health and various things if I had got out sooner. So it's kind of at odds with what a lot of people say. A lot of people's experience is that they're, particularly men and women with PTSD, a common complaint that I still hear today, and it's very real, is that the Defence Force is, is too keen to get rid of them, to, to give them a pension, recognise their condition, but just make them somebody else's problem. I think I was creating a lot of problems for myself just by hanging around hoping I'd get better you know, hoping that the army would be more like what I hoped it would be, which was not fair on either. So I had a difficult transition and I got to the stage where I was doing nothing. So I wasn't benefiting the army, I wasn't benefiting me. And I would get these shape up or ship out emails once a year saying, are you gonna do anything if not get out? And I couldn't, but eventually I said, I said yes. And then I got an email in 2016 that basically said, your request for separation has been approved. I, I didn't have to worry about transitioning because I already had a job. But I, it's something we hear time and time again about the, the lack of support and lack of preparedness for people leaving the Defence Force, many of whom have had as much time as I have but in the full-time army, and not being supported or prepared for their time to leave. And I've seen so many examples of that when I was uh, working as a, a public relations officer for one of the brigades in the late 1990s. I mean, I, I was with um, uh, my brigade major had served in Rwanda and he was getting ready to leave the regular army and he came to me and said, I just have to ask you this question. He said, he said, headhunters, recruitment agents, do I have to pay them to find me a job? <laughs> that was the level of preparedness that a major, you know, a, a field grade officer had back then. And, it, and, and in so many ways, it hasn't changed. Um, I think if you look at veterans affairs today, it's, it's still in the news. And, and, you know, I'm working on a book now, you know, where, where these issues have, have happened uh, during the Vietnam War and then all the operations since. 
where there is this disconnect between the military and then the veterans community and the Department of Veterans Affairs. And people tell me now that people leaving the military now, they have a seminar from DVA, they are given a, a veterans white card which entitles them to free mental health care and free treatment for serious mental conditions such as cancer and, and, and other illnesses. Now, that's great. That's great. But that's only happened in the last year or two after our longest war ever is over. Um, I'm actually privileged to be the Vice President of the RSL, Avalon Beach RSL Subbranch, which is different. A lot of people don't understand the difference between the RSL clubs and the RSL subbranches. So the subbranch looks after veterans and their families and welfare and um, keeps that sense of community that we've been used to having in the military alive for us to help with transition to civilian life. So it plays a really important role and we're just really fortunate in Avalon that the Club Limited, Avalon Beach RSL Club, are really supportive of the veterans and everything we do in the sub-branch. They support all, all of our memorial ceremonies um, and they're always willing to help us host functions for veterans and it's just a beautiful community atmosphere here. Um, so we are really lucky. There's a difference between other RSL clubs and this one at Avalon because the staff really care about veterans and their history. So it's a pretty special place. It is. It's, um, I'm going through it myself at the moment and I'm finding Sorry. it really challenging. We have some amazing volunteer advocates here at our sub-branch and at the Veterans Centre at DY as well mm -hmm. who help us through the paperwork because I mean, I've got a pile this thick that my GP has to go through assessing any injuries from my service time and it's very challenging emotionally to have to relive certain situations um, so I can understand why a lot of veterans steer clear of going through that process but the more that we do it and get the help out there for people in need, veterans in need, the more um, we'll be successful in stopping this terrible trend of this veteran suicide and mental health issues. For me, there is a significant gap in the current veteran support system, which is families. Um, and, and, by f and I mean families in a very general sense, but in particular, I mean civilian families. So if I had worn a uniform, there are a plethora of supports out there for me. Um, now, the issue isn't the number of supports, the issue is accessibility. So there's, a, there's an issue of how I can access what's out there for me, but nonetheless, there is a safety net out there to capture me. As a civilian, those safety, that safety net is not as coherent, it's not as robust, yet I still manage the impacts of military service every day. Um, so for me, that, and there has been this need for a very long time. Um, I noticed it pretty much day one after Gary's accident. There, you know, was a number of systems that were already in place to wrap around the widows, which is great and as, as it should have been, but, but for, you know, a couple of people in the regiment at the time, I effectively would have walked that journey on my own. But for the bonds that we had already created with others, um, I would have been sort of almost isolated being the civilian in the group that wasn't a widow. Um, and even worse for someone like Gary's mum, who wasn't the widow, isn't the fiance, isn't the wife. Um, so there's just, for me, and it's become glaringly obvious, particularly after events like Invictus. Invictus was the first one that I had seen that really um, respected and honoured the role of families, particularly post-injury. 
um, and the families of those that are managing and supporting people with mental um, mental injuries themselves. So it just the more and more I realised how isolated we all are. Um, I really want to build that community. I really want people to recognise that they're part of that community and that they're not alone. Um, that there is a significant network of, of women and families that are out there um, that have all worked a, walked a similar journey. Um, one of the very lovely war widows put it so nicely the other day when I was telling her about my experience and um, the first thing she said to me was she's like we just we have this bond that transcends you know any form of generational gap or geographical gap and that's what we're connecting on and and I think she's exactly right and for me it's that's out there and if we can help to fill that need in the community I think we're going to equip the families much better um, to look after themselves and then if they can look after themselves hopefully we can have a positive impact on potential intergenerational trauma and then have a positive impact on, on the veterans themselves and their long-term health and wellbeing. Well, that's, that's a relatively, well, I guess the concept's always kind of been there, um, you know, ever since we started to get out more and sort of tell our stories, we're keen to, to do that because we want people to see that just because something shit happens, it doesn't mean that that's your whole life. You know, you can it come out the other side. And it doesn't define you like yeah. your injuries are, you, whatever you've been through, whatever happened to you, isn't who you are as a person, like like a career, like that's yeah. a part of your life, like that's now helped you get to where you are currently. Yeah. So we want people to hopefully see the, the, light, end, the light at the end of their tunnel. Um, so the once, um, once, once COVID goes away a bit, uh, we will we'll probably hopefully get back out there a bit more and do some of that. But the um, what we're doing at the moment it's, is a sort of a side project which sits under that banner, um, which is basically making face masks, selling them, um, and the profits of the face masks are being pulled and they'll be donated towards the Invictus Family and Friends program. Um, once Invictus gets going again in Australia. So the, and my focus there is again, rolling back to community and wanting to have some form of activity um, that that money can fund, which will build social cohesiveness in that group. So that when the games end, because it is such a great experience and you are on this massive high, they know that there's a support network for them. So the athletes get to build that all the way through as they go through the journey of getting ready for competition and competing and post and, you know, they still have their network, but the families are only brought together for, for one event and a flash in the pan. So it's um, being able to have an activity that will bring them together and will break down the barriers is, is what I'm really trying to do with the money that's being pulled from that. Um, and unfortunately, I'm making all the masks on my own because he can't cut material. <laughs> oh, no, I can't, sorry. It's yeah. It's safe, I'm helping everyone by not touching him. We wanted to thank you for your support with our new series, and we would love to know what you want to see in the season's return next year. When the shots crack around you, you remember the high, but it wasn't excitement, it was just terrifying. 
the steel tore through clothing, mud walls, trees and flesh As I emptied my mag towards nothing at best And as I crawled forward and I looked through his sights I turned and saw Loudy give a wink and a smile He shouted with me as he sprung to his feet With his gun up and firing out into the green and the dirt I tried to forget how I tried